Hi, and welcome to Discussions of Music, Healing, and Consciousness with your hosts, Chris Noble and Bill Brosman. Today's episode, we're talking about binaural beats. What are binaural beats? How do binaural beats work? How do they shift the brain into different states of consciousness? Everyday uses for binaural beats, and much, much more, as always, in our open discussions here on Discussions of Music, Healing, and Consciousness. Every second and fourth Monday, for as long as we've lived here, like since February, they're street sweeping, right? And if you don't move your car by seven o'clock, you get a ticket. You think I'd learn, right? (laughs) You think I'd learn. Like Sunday night, I'd remind myself, there'd be stickers and post-its all over the place. It's 60 (laughs) bucks, right? And if you, you know, so you think I'd learn. It's the fourth Monday of September. Did I move the car? (laughs) No. (laughs) Have I been telling myself to set an alarm and create a timer and do like intelligent human things that human beings would do? Mm-hmm. Yes, I have been telling myself that. But there's a short circuit someplace. And it's really weird to me, Chris. It's like, so here's the, here's the, the prompt. What other sort of consciousness facts like that do we just, I don't know, wire around, forget? I, I'm not sure what the, what the consciousness answer is there. But it's such a crazy dang thing because here we are, we're both, you know, highly intelligent guys. We do very complicated musical things regularly. And yet moving the car so that I don't get a ticket when the street sweeper comes (laughs) on the second and fourth Monday of every month, like this is not a (laughs) (laughs) one-off. What's Uh, up with that, dude? I mean, seriously. Well, you know, Good, good to hear these things because I know anyone listening is going to relate because that's a human thing. Totally, you know. There's, there's my one of my favorite human things to do where there's like a short circuit in the brain is you uh, two things and they always happen in the kitchen. It's like you get into the kitchen first and foremost. You forget why you're there in the first place. <laughs> then, then the second, the second part of it is when it's usually first thing in the morning or last thing at night. When you're having a midnight snack or you're having maybe your, your, uh, whatever you're having in the morning for breakfast, you, let's say you're having cereal, <laughs> you take the milk out of the fridge, you take the cereal out of the, you know, the, the drawer or whatever, yeah. and then you put the milk back in the drawer <laughs> and the cereal back in the fridge <laughs> and you take a moment and go, hmm, that's not right. <laughs> hey, a little musical accompaniment. I guess my keyboard is on. Oh. I guess that we sounded actually that really go, good, right? That's not too bad. It's a nice little jam. Welcome to the. Well, let's see, that's like <laughs> we camera can add doesn't that work, in after. but right. <laughs> I'll send you the track. That's a really cool beat, though. Sounds like a like an eight oh eight or something. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, so, and I've done that, or I've lit a match and I've thrown the box of matches into the trash. <laughs> uh, it's very reassuring <laughs> to hear these things. So you know what. On a level of consciousness, I honestly have no idea what's going on there. Other than that, your consciousness is literally not really in, in your body at that point because it's, it's obviously elsewhere. And, and we could call that daydreaming, um, whatever, sleepy kind of brain. But chance, good. the good thing is what you asked there actually has to do with some of the research I was doing today because I've been beefing up my website and looking for a lot more um, statistics on music and sound therapy. Yeah. And specifically binaural beats, other things like that. I actually got some decent stuff. We can talk about that more today. 
But for the thing with neurocognition uh, and memory improvement, there is correlations and there is uh, actual pretty amazing studies to show that um, music absolutely enhances the memory uh, in your brain, depending oh, sure. on how depending on how you use it, of course. And certain things are better than others. So, for example, binaural beats. When you're using something like an alpha wave brain pattern, and for the people listening, you know the, what binaural beats do is it's called brain entrainment, and you're putting one frequency in one ear, a different frequency in another ear, and the and the difference in those frequencies um, cancel each other out and form a new frequency, basically. And because one's going in one ear and the other's going in another it actually shoots a frequency through your brain through in, in through your ears and, and basically creates a new brainwave pattern. And we've got, as of right now, we've been able to find five different brainwave patterns. We've got Delta, Theta, Alpha, Beta, Gamma. Delta is when you're in a deep sleep, uh, maybe like 0.5 to 4 hertz. Theta is, you know, more in a relaxive state, deep meditation perhaps. And that's like four to seven alpha. And this is just for the listeners listening. I think they'd really appreciate like knowing this stuff. Yeah, knowing this stuff. Yeah. Right. Alpha waves are seven to 13, 14 hertz roughly. And this is in a, this is in a more enhanced state. I think I skipped theta waves. Excuse me. Anyway, it doesn't matter. We've got beta, we got gamma. As they increase in frequency, basically your um, concentration levels and... Sometimes stress hormones as well can increase, but depending on the situation, these different uh, brain waves have very different functions, right? So if we want to alleviate stress and anxiety, we can put on something like an alpha wave binaural beat, which will bring your brain wave into a more relaxed state or even deeper into a theta wave state if you want to go into like a deep meditation or something like that. So you can use these types of things like binaural beats to enhance your memory and we were talking in a couple of times back about, you know, the 40 Hertz therapy. Right. And right. I actually saw that pop up even more in different studies with Harvard uh, Medicine, Johns Hopkins, and other things on PubMed that I was looking at. And so this 30 and 40 Hertz therapy seems to be having quite a lot of benefits in dementia, Alzheimer's uh, patients. But what they're really finding is what it's doing. And I, I just used this statistic, not statistic, but this kind of um, result or sort of conclusion that, some, that one of these studies was brought to, which um, basically, and I'm trying to pull it up here, I can't quite find it at the moment, but it's, it's, a, it's a way of not only enhancing you know, you know, mood and whatnot like that, but it actually enhances neurocognition and it actually repairs neural pathways and in, 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 in actually creates new ones. Um, and not just like when you're, when you're creating uh when you're doing something new, for example, you create new neural pathways. Well, you can also create neural, new neural pathways just by listening to certain frequencies, which means when you, when anytime there's a new neural pathway opening that in a kind of layman's terms, you could look at it as brain enhancement. You're enhancing sure, yeah. your brain by opening yeah. up new neural pathways. So they're finding that these binaural beats mixed with certain types of tones, certain frequencies, um, it's really starting to become a clinical device that is being used more and more and more. And 
to kind of conclude that thought with Johns Hopkins University, they're having really incredible and significant um, results with, with these trials in psilocybin and other psychedelic research. But what they're actually doing with the psychedelics is not just showing those um, which are amazing, by the way. And we've talked about this before and we'll definitely be doing it on more episodes. But not only are the psychedelics like psilocybin mushrooms having incredible results for PTSD and depression and lots of other mental health um, you know, illnesses, but uh, it's with the combination of music. And almost every study I was looking at that has psilocybin or psychedelic treatments they combine it with music. And I'm, I was watching in the, of course, that amazing documentary, Fantastic Fungi, that all these patients that they were showing doing the psilocybin treatment, all were wearing headphones, listening to certain types of music, frequency, barnacle beats, whatever that may be. And I want to find out, I'm trying to actually connect with these people this week and, and next week uh, as part of my, my own like kind of um, side business thing going on here. But uh, basically it's always got to do with music. What, what, like from your experience, I'm curious to hear what types of experiences have you had where music is combined with something else? And it's, it's a pretty therapeutic experience for you. What do you Oh, totally. So um, let's back it up just a little for anybody who's listening. and doesn't know what a binaural beat sounds like. Um, You got to listen to them in stereo because you need both your ears to be able to get the effect. And it doesn't really sound like anything except sort of like a wah, 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 but that's got a, that's sort of got a tone to it, a pitch to it. Mm-hmm. And the binaurals are, are so low, you can't actually hear a pitch, right? Mm-hmm. You just kind of get a, 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 a wave effect. I layer them. I put music on top of them all the time and I listen because I don't like just listening to wah, wah, wah by itself. Mm-hmm. So I just use music. So um, if you haven't heard one before, grab some headphones, make sure they're pretty nice ones. They work on earbuds, but I like the headphones. And uh, go to a place like, what is it, the Brainwave app from Bonsai Labs. I think that's for Apple users. I'm pretty sure that Android have uh, also have binaural beats you can get and play. But I first encountered them, and I didn't know what I was listening to, uh, when the piano tuner came over. Oh. And um, he explained to me how it is the pianos are tuned, which basically each of the most of the notes on the piano have three strings. And you want to sync the three strings together so they're all buzzing at the same pitch. Anything that isn't buzzing at the same pitch sounds like it's out of tune. I said, so how do you do this? He said, well, here's what I do. And he he tunes one of the notes first, and then he puts little dampers in so that the other strings can sound by themselves. And if they're not in tune, the idea is to tune the other two strings to the pitch that you tune the first string to. And they, they do that using what they call beats. So if it's out of tune, You'll hear a you'll hear the note ah, uh, but you'll also hear this ah, and and as it gets closer and closer, then the ah goes away and it becomes ah, so you get a steady pitch. And I haven't checked this out, Chris, but maybe you know. Is that an example of a binaural beat going yes. on right there? Yes, absolutely, it is. And you know, we start what I've what I've been uh, researching is that binaural beats exist all the all over the place. Apparently, yeah, they happen in nature all the time, especially when wind. Um, goes through the trees or overlaps with water. Um, sometimes the sound of rushing water combined with wind creates these mm, interference patterns. You could yeah, call it. Yeah, but and it's a it's a consistent. Um, I mean, it, it it is a pattern. You can repeat it. It's it's like correct. It's not just some random thing. Mm-hmm. 
Exactly. Now it, it might happen, quote unquote, randomly in nature, but it happens all the time. And you're getting like these repeated, slightly different patterns because wind shifts and changes and the sure, water yeah. shifts and changes, but there is a consistency to it. And the, you know, out in nature, which is one of the many reasons why nature is such a therapeutic um, thing for any human being uh, on a, on a, on a pretty much infinite level, but with the sound of, of nature, that's why in my meditation music, I'm pretty sure in almost every piece, uh, unless pretty well indicated, otherwise I always put nature ambience, whether it's yeah. wind, water, breeze through the trees in a forest, whatever it may be, because yeah. that, that already instantly puts the listener into a relaxed state, like instantly. It now, works so fast. When you layer in the nature sounds, are you layering in sounds that you know are binaural beats or are you layering in just like a mono track? Because unless it was stereo, I wouldn't think it would work. You know what I mean? No. I mean, that would be a really fun experiment to start figuring out how to record sort of the binaural effects in nature. But yeah. no, I, I'm definitely going more for a feeling and a, and a sonic soundscape experience. So I um, sometimes I'll actually have six, seven, eight different tracks, maybe a couple of wind tracks, and I'm EQing them to really fit in sort of sonic kind of pockets of space. And um, and then I'll combine that, maybe, maybe some birds. And so I really like to design my own nature landscape. That might be a bit more of my film and sound design background kicking in there. But it I find it very particular because... You know, with all my clients, if this is a if this is a contracted piece I'm working on, they usually have very specific requirements. You know, we want uh, at this stage in the journey for the listener to be you know brought into this deep state of relaxation, but then we also want their mind to be able to absorb the information we're telling them. So sometimes I get these very specific directions with the the music, and I have to design a nature soundscape that fits that very, very specifically. And as we all know, there's a million different, you know, variations on what nature can sound like. So, so dude, this is going to get deep in a hurry because right. um, <laughs> if you're out in nature, you're doing a forest bath, like they're talking about yes. in Japan and other places. So in nature, in actual nature, you're getting the binaural beat, whether or not you recognize that mm. that's happening to you because nature, the sound of it is giving you this experience, which is this binaural beat experience, which we'll get into in a minute. So you're out there and you're getting all that. Have you ever been tempted to use like not a subliminal, but a non-obvious binaural beat below what you're doing, like layered under the, the layered under the music, layered under the ambience to throw a binaural in there just to get to that, you know, that alpha relaxation state, if that's what they're after? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think I've written any therapeutic music piece without a binaural beat in it. Well, that must be why I had that strong reaction to the 40 Hertz stuff that I listened to. Yeah. So the 40 Hertz stuff, I believe I had a binaural beat playing under the 40 Hertz, if you can imagine, because I, the 40 Hertz was actually, a, it, it's actually, I believe, a very low D note. Um, I can't remember specifically what note on the piano it oh, is, pitch. but it, it, it was a pitch. There was a 40 Hertz you can hear. It's extremely low. Like a sub bass, but it, it it is actually audible and musical. So, I uh, I used a tone generator, a sine wave tone generator, created yeah. a forty hertz tone, and then just let that go throughout the whole piece. But then I also layered a much more subtle and you know non audible binaural beat. I think it was for an alpha wave 
brain entrainment, um, you know, situations. So it, it would get the listener into a, uh, yeah, relaxed state. And yeah, I, I absolutely did that. So maybe that was contributing. You're probably right. Yes, I suspect it does. And I I think we, like as human beings, we need this stuff. Um, One of the things that I love about symphonic music is that, first of all, it's mostly acoustic. I mean, there are some times where they bring in like a synth player or somebody who does Mm -hmm. something electronic. But most of symphonic music, uh, or most of anything that's sort of generated off of authentic instruments, uh, has the potential for binaural beats. I don't know if that's true for electronic instruments, but being a classical musician from way back, I feel much more healthy listening to classical music than I do, for example, listening to EDM live. And nothing wrong with EDM live, but when when the kick drum is is driven so loud that you can feel your internal organs jumping around, <laughs> <laughs> that's a different kind of therapy, dude. <laughs> you know? You don't. You have no chance in that kind of environment for overtones. Um, if they're, I mean, you might play a binaural below it. I, I would be interested to see if that could be done in a concert situation. But the natural, we talk about acoustics and the resonance of the building and all the other stuff that goes into making an authentic acoustic performance happen, is getting as close as you can to the authentic um, therapeutic elements of the music, not just the melody and the harmony and the rhythm and all of that, but to the other part of the music the part that creates this change that we want to see in ourselves, whether that's an intelligence, whether it's relaxation, whatever it is. Now that's the part, the non audible part, maybe is a good way of saying that comes from our experience of being around the vibrations in the room and, you know, all the overtones that are there that your brain doesn't sort out, but that it recognizes and, and responds to on a, on a very neurological level. So um, long answer, but yes, this experience is one that has been, like fundamental to who I am, just being around acoustic music. Uh, played in a Dixieland band, didn't have that kind of experience, but we played all acoustic instruments, right? So we had mm. everything there was acoustic. Uh, it's a whole lot of fun, but I don't know if that environment is the same kind of, uh, what, what do we want to call all this stuff? Extra musical experience? Well, yeah, it's a good question. I don't, there's obviously not really a word or phrase for it, but yeah, you could call these, um, you know, therapeutic music experiences. Uh, basically like, you know, it's something where you're, it's more than entertainment. You're, you're more than entertained yeah. in that experience. That's, that's, I guess the kind of defining feature is that something else is being shifted or changed. You, you're, you're different at the end of the experiment or the experience, yeah, you know, yeah. than you were in the beginning. And what that difference is, is, is all relative to the experience, but there's, there's a shift and it's not just, that was really fun, which is great, but it's, it's more than the entertainment. It's more profound, right? It gets into you in a way like, you know, after, after Owl City, I was like worn out because I'd been just at the, at the peak of like 120 decibel kick drum for two hours. And, um, and that was a different kind of experience. I felt great. I mean, but I was tired <laughs> at the oh, same yeah. time, right? I, I don't know. I hadn't been resisting, but I but that was a combination of things that I really recognized. Sometimes I feel like that after a symphonic concert, depends on the music. Um, but it's definitely a different thing than like sitting in a jazz club for a few hours. You know, you and know? I think I think the genre of music really depends too, because what I've been reading recently too is that rhythm plays a big role. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, rhythm does actually play a massive role uh, depending on what you're going for. Sometimes it plays more of a role. 
Um, if you're trying to, for example, they did some studies with premature birth, uh, birth babies, and they played certain a certain drum that was uh, doing uh, the BPM or beats per minute. Uh, that's the same as your heart, and they were re- re- mimicking the heart a heartbeat, and it would, statistically speaking, it seemed to. I guess, bring the baby's heartbeats into a more natural, healthy rhythm, let's say. Um, You know, I don't specifically know what they were going for in this study. I can't remember exactly, but they were playing that rhythmic drum and it had very positive effects on these these very, uh, obviously, infants um, because they're trying to actually replicate the heartbeat that they would hear inside the womb of their their mother. So they thought that was interesting. They also did, uh, just was an interesting study, they also did... um, a, lull- a lullaby sung by the parents of that child for like one hour a day or not one hour, but like, you know, I guess 10 minutes or something um, every day for, you know, I guess a month or something. And they, again, they found these really profound uh, improvements in the health of the baby from these different, very simple mo- uh, musical modalities being used. But with the rhythm thing, you know, it's, it's really, uh, it really adds a different component I find to the therapeutic side because, you know, rhythm can really, I find we're, and we've talked about this before with things like anger, for example, I find when you get a rhythmic piece of music designed to maybe help you curb your anger, it's going to help a lot more because just the rhythm in of itself, it matches the energy of that, you know, anger is a very fiery, intense emotion, you know, so listening to a very like soothing deep relaxation piece, it might not be what you need. Yeah. That scenario <laughs> always makes me angrier. It's like, don't mess with me. I'm on an anger binge right now. I want yeah. something that's going to keep me, you know, let me, let me spend this energy instead of trying to yeah. interfere with it, trying to put a cap on it, you know? Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, that, and that's where I get, you know, dance and music is such a, an amazing combination because when you're physically moving your body, as people know, just do it by doing yoga and things like that, and of course, dancing. I mean, you you release a lot of emotion so in much. so many different ways when you move your body in those in those kind of more le- more right brained way. Meaning that you're not thinking. It's not like a dance choreography. You're just letting yourself kind of you know move. Like do it. Yeah. So yeah. the the therapeutic value of all this, um, I I tend to believe, and I think there's research that supports this. One of these days, maybe I'll go find it. But from everything that I've read so far. If you're listening to music, uh, you're changing. You're in training to music. You're neurologically there, present. Whether or not your actual conscious attention is focused, it's working on you. And I always take heart in that because we've all played for rooms full of people where nobody seems to be listening, (laughs) you know? But it's getting in there. So something's getting in. (laughs) And I think that the difference, Chris, is when you bring your attention to it. So you can be having music therapy, sitting by yourself, in a club someplace with your cup of coffee and the singer-songwriters up in, on stage, you could be having music therapy. But if you brought your attention to that in a different way, you could increase the effects. And if, of course, you were working with a therapist and that was the environment, good heavens, if you work in a coffee shop with a therapist, good for you, right? Because that's mm. that's that's getting out there. Hmm. But if, if you brought your therapist with you, that would help you focus your attention even more. So I suspect that what's going on with the, uh, the Johns Hopkins studies, when they bring music into it, it gives people something to focus on. Because binaural beats by themselves are kind of like difficult to track. 
if you want to think about them or become Very consciously much. aware of them, it's like, you know, you, the mind will wander. But by putting music behind it, it gives you an opportunity to sort of engage at a deeper level. And that level of engagement is key to the, res to the results you get. You know, you go to a concert and it's like, oh, that was fun. Like me at All Sunday, right? So I, I, All Sunday was great, but I wound up being elated and tired, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and um, there was no way that I could divert my attention from that kick drum. It was not going to happen. That's me. I pay attention to that stuff. Um, put me in a coffee shop and I will ignore the conversation and listen to the music. <laughs> that, that's just it's like me. you're a musician so, or something, Bill. Yeah, it's like, I mean, it's like being a musician, right? It's like, what's important in this room? So the, the ability that we have to focus in on music is a great thing. And, and I believe that music is there to sort of draw us in. Now, how far do you want to go? If you go there with a healing intention, well, that's a different thing than if you're just listening because it's fun to listen, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I, I, I believe I'm looking for, you know, confirmation of this. Somebody hasn't done the study yet, but the good thing about music is that it gives us something to engage with. And we can sit in the chair and engage, or we can dance to music, you know, mm -hmm. or we can go into it with like a healing intent, like, or when I went in and listened to the 40 Hertz music, my intention right there was to allow, was to be fully present in the music. Um, that's hugely different than sitting in a concert hall or going to dance. You're just like, it's you and it's the music and that's it. And that, and that sort of opens the channel wider, I guess, is a good way of saying it to the results that you could experience. So, um, in, in the 40 Hertz experience, when I was listening to your music, I said, okay, so what, my, I'm curious, how is this going to affect me? And that was my intention. And that opened up a whole different experience. And if I just put it on in the background while I was trying to do something else and God help me, I wouldn't have been able to do the other thing now that I know what the music is about because <laughs> it would have, you know, the music would have drawn me in and the 40 Hertz would have drawn me into a place where I couldn't focus on anything else, you know, not like, you know, forgetting to move the car or putting the milk away in the drawer instead of the icebox. But in a in a much more uh, profound, uh, profoundly distracted way. So I'm I'm always curious about this. Like, what level of attention we bring to our music? Does that affect our experience of the music in some way? I mean, this is great because we're getting into this. This brings in. It's really interesting. It you you kind of triggered a, a thought for me, which was now we're talking about intention of the listener, not anymore the intention of the music itself, because. You know, for you and you and me and any listeners out there, obviously both, you know, Bill and myself write therapeutic music and we'll, we'll give some links later on. People can check it all out, but uh, you know, we're doing one part of the, uh, the process or, or one part of the experience. The other part is the listener. So if the listener comes in and goes, this is BS and I don't really care and whatever, throw it on. Maybe I'll throw on my cell phone. I won't even like put on headphones. And, you know, if that's the intention, you're not going to get much of an effect. First and foremost, you need to listen with headphones to have any real effect with a binaural beat for first and foremost. Second of all, your intention, as we know now through quantum physics and through ancient wisdom practices as well, like in meditation, yoga, et cetera, uh, we already know this, but your intention is everything. It's It sets you up for just creating the possibility for that change to be taking place in this experience, listening to any piece of music. So when you go in with that intention of like, okay, I wonder what this is going to do. And I'm open to receive, you know, any of the healing effects and uh, yeah, let's, let's do this. Well, then you've now 
primed yourself to to actually have that type of an experience, which obviously helps. I mean, in medicine, we see the placebo effect always is extremely effective in yeah. any study. And if if that's the one takeaway you can you can have from the from looking at that placebo effect is that it's mind over matter. So, and we know this with quantum mechanics, uh, everything we put our focus on shifts. We can change a particle to a wave or a wave to a particle simply by looking at it, by observing it. And so just with that in mind, you know, you're like, well, you brought up a great point. It's the listener plays an integral role to this experience just as much as the musician. Um, I hadn't really thought about it like that. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been, um, you know, this is this goes to that whole commercial versus artistic argument. And I want to say it in a way that's clear, but I've been very interested in how people experience music for a long time. Like from maybe the third year that I was playing the piano, it got my attention. And so I would have been, what, six, seven years old. I was really curious about what people experience when they hear music. And, um, you know, that's a whole different mindset than if you're composing music, because you have to kind of compose without too much concern for what it's going to, how the listener is going to take it. That's right. You know, thank you, uh, Schoenberg and all the folks who did 12 tone stuff. And thank you, Cage. And, you know, all, all of those experimental, which a lot of people find unlistenable. Uh, my buddy who does jazz metal. I mean, that stuff, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta have a brave soul to experience that as music. Right. Yeah. Um, but but it is. I mean, all this stuff is music. But uh, so what's the point? Uh, <laughs> writing for other people to to actually uh, hear? Eh, I don't know so much. And and I've had those assignments too. You know, Chris, where somebody says I need it to do this, right? This, it's got to sound this way. Right. This is you know, and and that's fine. Okay, so you do that. But you know, what's the healing value in that? I don't know. What's the healing value in an ad jingle or? that kind of stuff. You, know, you deserve a break today. So get up and get away to make all I mean, I remember this stuff from when I was like in elementary school. Earworms. <laughs> Earworms. And you know, there's probably some value in that. But I, I'm really curious. Um, and maybe one of the things to do is to get a team of people and sit at the door of a concert and ask people for their experience of what they just heard, you know, as they leave. And, and try to track it in some way and, and get some ideas and surprise the composers with, you know, well, this person thought, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's like, <laughs> it'd probably be easier to do with art. You know, people stand around, look at the Mona Lisa and you get a hundred responses back from that, right? Well, so, they're all going to be a hundred different ones too, though. I mean, that's the subjective right. nature of, of art. But yeah. I mean, I, what I think we're getting to is there's a middle ground where you have a very... I won't say commercial, it's more of um, scientific and medicinal uh, objective with this piece of music. And then yeah. you still have the artisan who's, or the musician creating that piece that needs to do, let's say, for example, is just something very basic, like, um, you know, inducing a sense of relaxation uh, and, you know, relieving stress. Okay. Very, very basic, but, but very helpful. And so, you know, a binaural beat like an alpha wave or a theta wave would be great for that. And uh, so you, you have a desired outcome. People need to feel relaxed. That's, you know, are they going to feel relaxed listening to death metal? Probably not. Right. Maybe well, there's, what, there's the odd person <laughs> who would, you know, <laughs> right? and, and some of those people might be, you know, veterans, 
Some of those people might be, you know, people that have had very intense like uh, construction jobs with jackhammers going all the time. And there's all, there's a weird sense of calm that comes from that loud banging. However, we're going to speak more in a general sense with most yeah. humans. So you have an outcome and you have a very specific purpose to this piece of music, but then to evoke that deeper, we could call it a mystical experience. Um, that, that a profound experience that happens outside of just the, a desire of like, yeah, I felt less stress, but then, you know, there's that, there's a difference between, I think, hitting that functionality and then also creating a piece of art that they, they, they both can be fused together to create, you know, in, 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 without any statistics to prove any of this stuff right now, because it's a very unstudied area, but my intuition says like, that's kind of the perfect balance for you. You want the, the science of what we're learning right now, which is that sound and music absolutely have an almost infinite amount of healing and therapeutic properties to be studied and, and learned about. But when they're combined in a more, when they're, when they're, I guess, realized in a more artistic way, the art, the art aspect, the artistic aspect is what creates, I think, a more spiritual experience, perhaps could be a more deeper emotional experience. I even read in some of these um, studies, one was in uh, Harvard Medicine, that they specifically said that, you know, it was, it wasn't just music that was written with binaural beats or anything like that. They specifically mentioned emotional music, Hmm, music that, that really evoked a, a very particular emotion. And so you can't just make a binaural beat. That's like one, 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 one. And then someone's like, I maybe want to cry. It's like, mm, I don't think that's really going to happen. I mean, it might for the odd few here and there, but it's, it's the binaural beat combined with a beautiful piece of music really. And so when I'm writing and I've done this since the beginning, just because I think for probably for both of us, we're the same letter where you're like, well, I want it to sound good. <laughs> you know, like I want, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I want music. Pleasing. This isn't yeah. just sound. This is also music. So the music component is, is where you're still writing something that's pleasing to the ear. So, you know, I would always try to, there's a science component, which I'm like, okay, these are the frequencies I got to create. This is the sensation, the brainwave uh, entrainment that I want to create with the binaural beat. Great. But now the, the musician side, the artistic side has to come in and go, okay, um, how are we making people feel this kind of stuff? How are we going to make them feel at ease? How are we going to make them feel relaxed? Because yes, we're doing that with the binaural beat, but there's more to that, you know? So when I add in nature sounds, for example, that's immediate, like, boom, I'm relaxed. Great. Okay. Maybe now on top of that, we're going to add a really nice light um, sort of angelic synth sound, synthesizer sound, perhaps. And then we'll mix that though. If we want to add that emotional component, light, really soft, light, delicate piano on top, that might sound really nice, you know? So when you, you combine all that together, now you have a real piece of music that has a very scientific purpose. So I, I get to be the outlier here. And I agree with everything you said, because you look around and say pop music is popular because it, a lot of people relate to it. The, um, the work I've done with music and folks who are at risk, homeless and blown up veterans, that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. has convinced me without a doubt that the research is uh, around how music affects us is highly individual. And and the best that they can get to on this is that the songs that you love, the songs that are in you some way are your most powerful songs. Um, So generally when we were adolescents, young adults, that's when the music got into us 
that we carry with us for the rest of our life. Which is why, you know, you go to a Vietnam veteran and you play a piece of music from the 60s or 70s, it's going to have a different effect than if you played that same piece of music for somebody who was older or somebody who was younger, mm. right? Somebody who's older is going to resent that music or have, it'll have a, a, a sort of an adverse response to it because their music is more like big band stuff, right? That's right. And somebody who's younger is going to go, what's that old stuff? What's that music? Who's, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> who was it that said, I don't, I don't think it was our conversation, but somebody said to me a little while ago, he was really surprised when his teenage daughter came to him one day and said, dad, did you know Paul Simon had a band before Wings? Or uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> Paul McCartney, McCartney had a band before Wings. <laughs> it's called the Beatles. <laughs> the Beatles, remember them, right? Uh, oh, who knows where my memory is today? So this whole science of the music that we love is our most powerful music. Also, by correlation, says we can't actually go to any particular person with absolute certainty that if we play Blackbird, for example, um, it's going to have the same effect on everybody in the audience right? Some people are going to get it one way. Some people are going to get it another. And so, um, I mean, by and large, you've got that beautiful bell curve. So people under the first energy deviation, they're all going to get it the same way, but you start to move out towards the ends. And um, I mentioned the, the homeless population I got to work with. I have a schizophrenic buddy, um, homeless guy, amazing guy, but you know, dealing with a behavioral illness like that is very difficult. And for him to get any kind of peace, he layers up binaural beats like four or five at a time. Wow. Just to dial him down to where he can talk to the rest of us, right? Interesting. And most of the music that I'd use in class was music that made his skin crawl. Um, he needed he needed death metal, <laughs> you know, to feel normal. And I can understand that, right? There's a different kind of a frequency going on there, hmm. and and that's fine. That's totally cool. But it really made me humble because you know. <laughs> I'm not the guy, I'm not a music therapist, but I'm not, I'm definitely not the guy who's going to walk into an audience and say, now you guys are going to listen to this and it's going to make you feel this. And so go, <laughs> you know, because mm -hmm. that doesn't always work. Um, so I think, um, who was it? John Cage was really smart writing four minutes and 33 seconds to let everybody have their own a sonic experience of what was happening when no music was playing. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, I'm, I'm very careful about sort of guided imagery and guided experiences with music too. And just offer audiences a chance to pick any song that they want to listen to. The brain will play it for you. Once you start it going, it'll play up there. And um, allowing people to have their own individual sonic experience around something that could be therapeutic or not, right? Um, there, There's this uh, this need to bring everybody into the room and not exclude everyone. And that maybe that's just me looking around the audience and going, what can I play? that will make all these people happy. Right. That's never going to happen. <laughs> right. You know, some people are, some people aren't. And for the most part, I mean, you can be sure that under the bell curve, what is it? 68% or something the people are going to get it. And then there's another few outliers that might feel it differently. And then some will just repel rebel entirely. But the thing that the commonality that we started with the binaural beats physiologically, right? We can measure the effects of those. And we can say scientifically, this is how, you know, X population will respond. And for me, that's exciting because you could put those behind anything. In fact, you could really play around with people and put some relaxing binaural beats below death metal to see what would happen. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> right? Though, right. And just see if people chill because the physiology says that they should. Hmm. Right. That's really interesting. You know, like there's a lot of really 
really interesting points. That I think the first thing is that there's sort of two ways to, well, probably more than that, but anyway, there's like two things that popped out to me, which was there's the individual experience to music and all the, th- the therapeutic aspects of music where you're absolutely right, especially with, this is actually the most with music therapy um, yeah. because music therapy, I mean, they're not even on a clinical level getting anywhere near close to really binaural beats and stuff like that. I've actually asked music therapists and they have no idea what binaural beats yeah, and are. Why is that anyway? I don't different know. Subject. Anyway, different subject, no idea. But because um, it's been researched since I think the early, anyway, 40s or 50s, the binaural beats were came into existence from some German scientists. But um, so they're, they're not new anyway. Uh, it's more that, so with music therapy, what they're very focused on is intentional, um, listening and playing of music. So encouraging their patients to also participate in the performance mm-hmm. of the music, which is huge, which is actually a really big part of the therapy itself, which as I know, both you and me can attest to as musicians who play as much as possible, not maybe every day, but certainly uh, as as frequently as possible, it is our therapy. I mean, it's one of our major forms of therapy. Um, So we obviously know that that works, but you're absolutely right. So for example, I've played uh, concerts, you know, where uh, I played at a retirement home, for example, I used to do quite a lot of that when I was out of college. Me too. And and I and I loved it because it was uh, not only a very engaged audience, but it was one of the first experiences I had with music therapy, where I played a song, for example, from uh, I played an Elvis song, and I remember this very well. This one gentleman um, had Alzheimer's, and all of a sudden he's singing every word of that, Isn't that song. Cool? That's oh, so amazing! It's yeah. magic. It yeah. you feel like a magician or some yeah. like you know you you have superpowers at that point. And, um, it got him and his daughter they were up dancing for crying out loud. I mean, this is, uh, someone with the extremely, as we all know, is Alzheimer's. It's a very, uh, you know, very, very difficult and intense, uh, mental illness or disease or whatever the categorization is anyway, neurological disorder. And all of a sudden this guy is like out of his wheelchair dancing and singing. I mean, yeah, you couldn't get that with any pharmaceutical on the market. So the, the, that's, one of the great examples, of course, of specific songs having a specific effect with a specific person. Yeah. But then one of the things that I have, you know, from experience and, and through a little bit of research, because binaural beats are, the brain waves are what they are. For example, you know, it alpha waves, you know, for, for example, are, are that frequency spectrum, meaning, you know, they they don't change. We've, we've measured the range that an alpha brainwave has, like what, where, what frequencies they are, which are uh, seven to 13 Hertz. And that's what it is. Like, that's how we've, we've, we've measured this through thousands and thousands of studies over, over many years. Now we know what the different brainwave patterns are. So when we're doing a binaural beat, it it's, I can't say this because I'm not a scientist and I don't haven't seen conclusive data, but it does make sense that, you know, if you're creating an alpha brainwave pattern, it's going to create an alpha brainwave pattern in that person's brain. Meaning that like, it doesn't matter who you are, that is going to be the result. So exactly right. I, I do feel like there's two parts where it's like, yes, there's no way on earth you could play one song and it's going to have the same effect on everyone. That's just impossible. That's not how music or art works, but if you're writing something that's so almost 
clinical in a in a way, right? Or so yeah. like specific to to if I call it functional music, you know, there's such a specific function that I would be curious to see how much higher would it be on a general level that people would have, are they going to love the piece of music? Maybe not, but they're not going to hate it either. Like I actually, I've, I've tried writing things that are generic, to be honest with you. And that, that was my goal is like, I want a piece of music that sounds nice, but it's generic. You're not, you're not going to leave it humming a melody or singing anything. You're not going to really even remember it. It's just going to happen, but it's going to, it's going to deliver what it's meant to do, whether that is again increasing your memory or uh, concentration or, re- or you know inducing relaxation, whatever it is, I, I feel that there is that kind of functional music that it's going to have a much larger effect on a much greater number of people purely because it's in a sense generic and functional. Does that make sense? Oh, it totally makes sense. I wonder if we should like start to put disclaimers on all our albums. <laughs> Yeah, I, I've had to do that on my YouTube channel. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's smart because because binaural beats can be harmful. They can be if you're if you're doing. First of all, a thing that I also I mean the disclaimer kind of keeps getting added on to because one thing I forget, and this is what a lot of people who teach breath work do uh, say, and I'm like eh, that's probably a smart thing because well that's why disclaimers exist, and that is don't listen to this while you're driving. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Please. Or doing Please, really people. anything like, and for those listening, I mean, it, this is really important. You know, yep. when you're going to put your headphones on and listen to this, like lie down or sit in a very comfortable chair, but don't, don't do anything. Don't have any kind of activity based around these. Some now I'll, I'll, there is a caveat because like, once you start getting into these, you can start to do things with this, but you got to be careful. So for example, one of the things I actually will do while listening to Byronal Beats is work, meaning computer work, writing, but I'm sitting down and I'm, yeah. you know, like I'm still at my desk and I'm creating uh, whatever I'm writing or I'm, I'm working on the computer. That's when I'll listen to Binaural Beats as well. But anything else like exercise, definitely not. Sometimes with yoga, I might, but once again, what am I doing? I'm lying down, right? I'm in yeah. meditation. So that, that, that's a big thing. You're absolutely right. The disclaimers, because it's not, um, it's not, as we know with, uh, things like even Wi-Fi signals, Bluetooth signals, and all this other wireless radiation that we are getting from all of our technology, it's not good for us. It is actually harmful in a lot of ways. And that's frequency. These are maybe two, 2.4 gigahertz frequencies, but they're still frequencies and, and binaural beats are no different. They're frequencies as well. And some frequencies are good and some frequencies are not. And yeah, like sometimes the, you got to be careful. The What's the scientist? There's several of them now treating cancer with frequencies. I oh, think we well, discussed that. Yes, yeah, you can see the TED Talks on those. Uh, yeah, that's couple. pretty cool stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, let's talk a little bit about what's going on with binaural beats because to me, this was fascinating to find out. And I didn't know about um, EMDR very much until I actually studied it. So eye movement desensitization and reprocessing works as your eyes move left or right, or if you have tappers or buzzers in your hand, you get the stimulus on the left, stimulus on the right, and it keeps on orbiting. It's a very slow kind of form of left, right, left, right. Uh, binaurals are very fast. They're, I can't even say it, left, right, left, right. They're, they're, they're oscillating so fast between your left and right ear that the, the intensity of the left-right stimulation is greater than if you were doing EMDR. However, um, EMDR works. It gets this amazing response of something like 80, 90% per, 
relief of symptoms for post-traumatic stress patients. You know, it's just, wow. it's this crazy thing and they don't know why it works. I mean, they really don't. They know how it works and what it's doing. And I have a feeling that when the research comes out, the binaural beats and EMDR are going to be seen to be creating the same kind of stimulus in the brain. So EMDR creates this left-right oscillation along the corpus callosum, which is the, the comms channel between the left and right hemispheres of the brain. Mm. It stimulates that. And when that's stimulated, it's possible to do things like release stored trauma, release traumatic energy. Wow. And if you're stimulating that with binaural beats at a lot higher frequency, not a sound frequency, but it's happening faster, uh, you're able to do things like fall asleep and become relaxed and uh, become more awake and stimulate you know, intellectual function and all that kind of stuff. So I have a feeling that what we're talking about here, this left-right thing is a spectrum. Mm. And it may be very slow on the EMDR side, it may be fast on the binaural beat side, but I think it's all part of the same thing. And um, I learned about this or made the correlation or whatever. The lights went on for me when I was doing EMDR and trauma therapy. And I had these tappers in my hands and it was buzz left, buzz right, buzz left. And, and the instructions in this therapy are bring the traumatic moment to mind. And then you sit there with the buzzers or following a light bar or whatever it is. And you basically just remember this traumatic event. And somehow the traumatic energy leaves it. It, it, it just you can read the doctors on this. Uh, what's the book? Uh, the Body Keeps the Score by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. And uh, it sounds like they're just sort of punting on why this happens, but it works. It totally works. And so I'm, I'm feeling that there's some sort of a correlation. I stop in the middle of this. I, I put down the tappers and I say to my therapist, wait a minute. I've been doing EMDR for as long as I've been playing the piano. And so have drummers. Right. Mm. And so have anybody else that has to do something with left and right hands alternatively. All you've got to do is bring your focus, that intention we talked about, bring your intention to that thing as bigger than making an instrument or making a drum happen. And the thing that you bring in with your intention is the thing that gets resolved. So chronically depressed kid, grew up playing the piano. The piano is my go-to, like you, you know, this place we go to for our sanity. Mm -hmm. I think scientifically, it really was the place that I went to for my sanity because if EMDR is a thing and binaural beats are a thing and you get both at the piano and all I was doing was going there and playing my depression, playing my anger, Beethoven, mm -hmm. Rachmaninoff, Chopin, whatever, those are big angry composers. That was therapy for me in a way that I didn't realize, but we now have scientific evidence to suggest that is actually true. That's amazing. Isn't that, that crazy, dude? That, that really is crazy. And, that, and that's why, you know, one of my biggest things for anyone who's especially non-musicians, which is most people, yeah, because everyone, no, most people would never consider themselves uh, musicians. Even some of my friends who I'm quite literally collaborating with on a musical level, and they still don't quite consider themselves musicians because we, you know, we live in a very more elitist uh, mentality kind of uh, yeah. society these days where you have to be an expert at, you know, at, at something to really do that thing, which of course... Uh, is crazy, but um, so yeah. <laughs> you know, like it, it would it stops a lot of people from from creating music. Which, at the end of the day, it's it's just like you don't need to you know learn an instrument or start singing or both to be the next pop star, to be the next you know whatever you you know whatever who, name your favorite musician. You know, we always compare ourselves to the top people, and we're like, no, that is not the point. The point is pure expression. You know, the yeah. point is yeah. to let 
everything that you're feeling in that moment just flow out in a nonverbal way, which, which again, talk therapy is really great and it's helped me a lot, but it was with the fusion of music and, you know, I would talk to my therapist, but then I would go and play the piano afterwards about the same things I was talking about. And I needed that left brain therapy mixed with the right brain therapy. Corpus callosum happening right there. You get, you're doing EMDR and integrating the two and somehow that helps, right? Right. With no, you know, this was obviously done on a completely intuitive, like I just need to play music. I'm not thinking. I get that. Why? Right. Of course, at the time, but yeah, that's exactly what was happening. And what a great example of, uh, you know, of, of those effects. It's incredible. That really brings it home. And, and that you were doing that too. I, I, we ought to start talking and just asking people because, you know, I, we all went through teenager years and that's tough enough. But those of us who are musicians who are doing that, like the Dixieland band I was in, mm-hmm. and we were all what? 15, 16, 17, 18 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, this was our therapy. I mean, garage bands that get started, that's therapeutic. You have a it's, place it's therapeutic. to go. It's also, um, you know, it's community. You know, a friend of mine just recently back in yeah. Toronto, she uh, she joined a rock band uh, group. Now, this is actually like, so it's, it's set up exactly like a sports league where you join up for like a hockey or soccer league and you, Brilliant. you know, you, you join into the league, right? So then you get put into a different team and then you're in a different, depending on your skill level, they'll put you into a different bracket of skills so that sure, it's fun yeah. for everybody. Exact same idea, but for creating a rock band. And awesome. it's just for a bunch of non-musicians who are musically inclined or just want to play just purely for the fun of it. And they don't know where to start and they don't really have any friends who are wanting to do this. So what do they do? Yeah, they, they join up these rock band communities. The organizer puts them in a band of you know like-minded and, and sort of similar skill level people. And uh, now she's playing in this uh, once a week meetup rock band where they've got a list of, you know, just covers that they're learning, but the joy that she gets not only out of the actual music and the performance of that music, it's the people, it's the community, it's the bond that you're forming with these people. And what I experienced much like yourself in high school and then later, later on in adulthood, you know, is this amazing community and, and this amazing connection with all my musician friends throughout the years uh, and non-musician friends, just people I've made music with, those are connections that you really, like they might not be lifelong, but they're certainly profound and meaningful connections at that time because they're made through music. Yeah, It's just yeah. deeper. You know, you, you connect on that deeper level and it's non-verbal. It's a non-verbal connection um, that you have. I mean, I, I dearly miss my <laughs> reggae jazz band back in Toronto. I used to play with every uh, couple times a month. We had a residency at a couple jazz bars nice. and you know, it's just that like nonverbal communication for three hours a night <laughs> yeah. via music was yeah. unreal therapy. Oh. And then that, com- that, com- that crowd, like you're connecting with the audience and that symbiosis and every musician can relate to that. It's really what the part of the, you know, the, the real joy and why most musicians keep doing what they're doing in spite of the craziness of the career is because of that feeling. It's just yes. utterly, it's bliss. It's utter There's bliss. N- nothing else feeds you that way. Oh, I mean, maybe it, maybe nourishing. mushrooms can, I don't know. I mean, I, I love that way. we're, I love we're sort of converging around whole plant medicine in the world as a, as a treatment for things. 
and that music and the science behind it is starting to to sort of bubble up and Johns Hopkins potentially doing both. I can't wait to find out what you learn about that. You know, Mm -hmm. whether the people on the psilocybin trip are listening to something that they've chosen and as they're tripping and um, what an amazing experience that must be. Right. Well, they say like, this is just part of the, um, this is part of this uh, research from uh, it's on, I think it's on PubMed. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's from the psychiatry and behavioral sciences from Johns Hopkins. So they say the recent findings point to the potential of music to support meaning making, emotionality, and mental imagery after the administration of psychedelics. And it suggests that music plays an important role in facilitating positive clinical outcomes of psychedelic therapy. So when I'm watching that and I'm seeing the patient lying down for the psilocybin therapy, they've got their headphones on. Yeah. And that's, I will, will, you know, for those listening, stay tuned for future episodes when I figure this out and I'll, and I'll talk to someone at Johns Hopkins and we will, uh, we'll get the information and we'll relate. And of course, maybe eventually uh, have someone like that on the show. It'd be great too. But I, I would love to know what on earth they're listening to. I'm going to put money on binaural beats of some kind and with an addition of nature ambience, some form of nature ambience. Those are my two. We know that there might very likely be a form of music, but I'm going to say there's going to be some form of nature ambience, perhaps, and a binaural beat. We'll see. We'll see if what, what's being played. There is another component to that psilocybin therapy that doesn't get mentioned that, well, not in this particular study, but that is really important to also, I think, mention to the listeners is that there is a guide throughout the whole time. And it's, uh, it's a medically, you know, licensed professional who has the specialty with the psilocybin treatment, but what they're doing. And I saw this in a couple of videos is they're actually holding the hand of the patient the whole yeah. time, keeping you grounded. They're very much there with you. And from some, for, some, for someone who's had amazing experiences with psychedelics, but never done in that therapeutic clinical type of setting, I would love to experience what that's like. Right? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be awesome? And and I have yet to have that experience with mushrooms. Um, but having a guide there just seems like such a great thing. Not a therapist, a human a being who's actually present, mm-hmm. holding the space. Talk about holding the space. Literally mm-hmm. holding your hand in the space mm-hmm. to re- to remind you that you're not alone, that you're doing something important, that it's beautiful. Um, what an incredible job that would be, right? Oh, I know. I know. I, I saw this woman doing that. I'm like, well, there's another, in another lifetime, that's probably one of the jobs I would have been going after because that just seems so incredible. Um, an incredible fusion. You know, another really interesting thing on the neuroscience side, I just found this uh, other bit of information here, and this is from Harvard University, which is listening to and performing music. So once again, it's not just listening to the music, but it's also performing the music and get the word performance. If, if you're a non-musician, don't worry. It's like, just, just smack a couple of the white keys on the piano. You'll be fine. Yeah. Just doesn't matter. But anyway, sing listening along with a track, whatever singing is phenomenal. Everyone can sing anything, but listening to and performing music reactivates areas in the brain associated with memory, reasoning, speech, emotion, and reward. Music, do, music doesn't just, just help retrieve stored memories, which it does, right? So you can retrieve yeah. stored memories. We talked about that with Alzheimer's as an example, but you can do this without Alzheimer's, of course, as well. But it can also help you lay down new memories 
meaning creating these new neural pathways, expanding the brain, expanding the neural synapses and neural pathways. And basically, what is it? They In both of these studies, they had healthy elderly people. Um, they scored the, 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 these healthy elderly people scored better on tests of memory and reasoning after they completed several weekly classes in which they did moderate, moderate um, physical exercise and to, oh, sorry, physical exercise to musical accompaniment. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that was really interesting. So you start to see in a lot of these studies, especially now that I just went on a bit of a research binge today, I saw a really common, a commonality, which was that it was a different type of therapy with music, different type yeah. of therapy with music, with, with music. music. It's like, it's just always with music, you know? You, you've got to check out the book of vocal psychotherapy. I can't remember her last name is Dr. Diane somebody, um, where you sing your session. And she works primarily with musicians. I think she's in huh. Boston. And you, you go in and there's a piano in the office and you sit down at the piano and you sing your session. Hmm. And it's you know, improvised. Today I'm feeling a little depressed, but that's okay. That's why I'm yep. in therapy. <laughs> yep. like- and then therapists would sing back to you. So tell me about your mother or whatever it is. That is. <laughs> I don't know. You know. <laughs> well, let's dig deep into your childhood trauma. There we go. You know? Right. <laughs> So it's like right there wow. I, and a uh, fascinating book. I, I found that around the time that I was exploring EMDR and reading uh, Dr. Vanderkolk's book, whose kid, by the way, has an amazing show, a podcast. This is a plug. Okay. So thank you very much, wherever you are. Uh, love and radio, love plus sign radio, amazing, creative. Um, it, it's like radio. Chris, mm. it's like radio from back in the day. Uh, Nick Vanderkolk, thank you. Love and radio. We love you, buddy. Do that more. It's a great show. I have to check that out. And, you know, for those listening, we, we, we likely will have this together where people, there will be some links provided here. Maybe not to all the studies we've talked about, because there's a lot of them. However, you know, for, for anyone that is interested, there's a couple of really good websites that did offer some pretty good yeah. statistics and Harvard, the Harvard medical school, there's, you just go onto the Harvard medical school and you search and you just search sound therapy, music therapy, whatever, you'll actually get quite a bit. PubMed, uh, which is public medical uh, journals, things like that, which you have access to, is a phenomenal research as well. Yes, it can be a little thick, but one trick when you're at, for any of those, you know, I'm not an academic, by the way, but I've, I'm like a, <laughs> I'm an ac- academic by, uh, by necessity. Yeah, out of what I do now. (laughs) And um, so anyway, when you're reading these scientific and medical journals, like they at first, especially if you're starting to get into this, it looks very intimidating and very like, what the hell am I reading? All you got to do is they have usually an abstract at the beginning. And then you can usually read, which is there's a conclusion at the very top of all of this. They have their conclusion as to what they found. And all you really need to read is that, uh, that summarizes the entire study. And so you go in and you read and like through reading these conclusions, that's what I kept seeing was that uh, a lot of these different forms of therapy always incorporated music, but the resources out there, they are there. And I really do encourage people to to get out and to, if they're interested, of course, to, to oh, yeah. do some research on this because it's so much more than oh like 20 years ago, there was nothing. And now we've got this plethora of stuff. Thanks to Dr. Sachs and other people who got it rolling, you know? Yeah, he comes up a lot. Dr. Oliver Sacks, um, who wrote the you know New York Times bestselling book, Musicophilia, right? And he talks about how these, 
he uses really interesting clinical um, stories, you could call them, because they they really are amazing. Like one gentleman gets struck with lightning and becomes a piano virtuoso literally overnight. And he looks into that kind of science, which I find uh, absolutely fascinating that, you know, through just a, a, a massive shift in someone's brain, it immediately makes them a genius on the piano somehow. You know, yeah. that's another area of really cool research. I've been walking around with a lightning rod for a long time after that story. <laughs> Haven't been struck yet, but <laughs> uh, don't try this at home, kids. <laughs> yes, please. Disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. Yeah, no, it's all good. Chris and that. Bill said walk around with a lightning rod. I did not say I that. I did just no for the such record. thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's Bill's idea of a good time, not everyone else's. Exactly. So what's my music for remembering to move the car? <laughs> That's the open-ended question for next time. There it is. <laughs> Oh man. I mean, there's just so many things, you know, on a, a complete side tangent here, um, this is something that we might want to get into in a future episode, but when we've talked about this before, which is, um, you know, sound and music therapy in, from ancient times and, yeah. oh my God, now this is going to get a little more esoteric for sure. However, I came across in my research today, going through all this clinical research, I somehow stumbled upon uh, a recording of people doing these very like professional in a sense of like their musicians clearly that are um, vocalists that are doing an ohm, a series of different notes uh, on the vowel or the sound of ohm in the great pyramid. Oh my gosh. Oh my God. That had hit close to home. (laughs) It did because I've also done the same thing. However, I didn't do like, I wanted to go back and do a proper you know, session and record it with real musicians and all that kind of stuff to see what this would sound like. Well, I at least got to hear what it sounds like on YouTube and you can just literally YouTube, um, great pyramid ohm O H M. And you'll find this video. It's about 10 years old and it just sounds. And the cool thing is that they're also showing it with cymatics. Cymatics are Mm -hmm. sound made visible, usually through vibrating plates with um, sand or vibrating little tanks with water and they shoot a frequency through and the water actually changes and changes into different geometric shapes. But so they were doing that with this, with this uh, great pyramid ohm. But the, the whole point of this is that it is, there's also something that's going in, in a whole other realm that we, we still can't even get close to with science right now because science still is in the materialism paradigm and it's not yet. However, it's shifting a lot into the non-material more and more and more. But that being said, we could get into uh, later episodes on the spiritual side or the esoteric side of all this music therapy. And why is it that these people doing a, a small group ohm in the great pyramid made my like goosebumps on the, you know, mm-hmm. on, on my skin. Like I felt shivers of delight and just, almost like a, 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 a bigger godlike presence or something in this music or in this sound. And uh, why is that? Well, it's a combination between the sounds created and the acoustic environment. Now we're getting into like psychoacoustics and how is it's not just the music now that is, is helping people in a therapeutic level, but it's the environment in which they're listening to, which does go back yeah. to yeah. what you're talking about being at a concert and being in the certain acoustics of a certain space and why do people in some of these old, you know, Gothic cathedrals have these, you know, angelic, spiritual, whatever, esoteric experiences 
you know, when they're listening to a choir, for example, yes, the choir's doing probably beautiful music. However, it's also because of the space that they're in, which is another interesting thing to consider with music and then the environment that you're listening in. We've, we've got to go there because the biggest component, the biggest unexplored component of music is the spiritual one. Yes. We can measure some stuff, but there's so much we can't. And, you know, I don't know if we've got scientific instruments to measure the spiritual effect of music, but we certainly can recognize it when it happens. Like you were just remembering and got chills. Yeah. You didn't have to hear anything. So uh, let's, let's go there. I mean, that, that's a really cool aspect of maybe it's super consciousness. I don't know. It's definitely subconscious where we talk about spirituality, but I think consciousness and spirituality and practical spirituality are, are coming to us in a new form here. And the music is the carrier. I love that, Bill. It's a, that's yeah. Well, really well said. And, and you're absolutely right. We're just finding new language for things that uh, have always, of course, existed. We're just figuring it out. We're rediscovering it. We're rediscovering it. Yes, we're reintegrating and all that. Thank you for listening in on our conversation and for taking time to show your appreciation with a like, share, or subscribe. Discussions of Music, Healing, and Consciousness is a practice of spontaneity, and we welcome your comments, ideas, and questions. There are ways to connect with us in the show notes, so let us hear from you. Until next time, this is Bill Pratzman along with Chris Noble wishing you great musical health. Samara Huchaya! Huchaya!